What's up, guys? Vocal Fry is here in Los Angeles at the Venard Symposium, and we are having a great weekend. This morning, I had the great thrill to be able to record an episode uh, with Ian Howell, Ken Bozeman, and Chadley Ballantyne about their upcoming workshop, Acoustic Voice Pedagogy, that's happening at New England Conservatory here in mid-June. I want to encourage you guys to check it out. It'll be a great workshop for voice teachers, voice professionals, choral directors, directors, basically singers, anybody interested in the singing voice, knowing more about voice acoustics, I'll put their website as a link in the in the information about this episode. And it was just an honor to sit down with these guys. I respect these three gentlemen a great deal because they do a lot of similar work uh, to the work that I do. And uh, I, I look up to these guys very much and enjoy uh, this time that we had actually in person uh, rather than on, on the internet actually talking uh, in person. So hope you enjoy this special Vocal Fry episode uh, about the NEC voice ped, vo- acoustic voice pedagogy workshop. You're listening to the MC Vocal Fry Podcast, your weekly dash of voice science, pedagogy, and pop culture, coming to you from the campus of Mississippi College in Clinton, Mississippi. This does just as well. And once I clean up the audio and enhance it a little bit, it, it does just as well, so... It's a terrifying anyway. commentary on technology. Yeah. <laughs> it sort of is a terrifying commentary on technology. Unless we all had our own little fancy condenser mics that, you know, and then, okay, clearly the mm-hmm. audio signal's better, mostly because the bass response is so much yeah. better. And so you sound like you're a radio announcer yep. versus... How it's turned proximity effect. Yes. Um, and it does sound like going to make you sound cool, you know, when you have your little button. Mm-hmm. But uh, Chadley swipe, has but the I advantage of being the bass uh, <laughs> versus the rest of us who were higher voices. Uh, so, um, but pseudo voices. Oh, yes, but the, but the legend. You were on a slide, man. Oh gosh, you were on a slide that was, that was yesterday. It was not it was, embarrassing. I, I felt like it was like voice pedagogy hero bingo. Right? I got most of them. There was actually, there was, I, I was like, there was a picture of someone I oh, didn't Lawrence. recognize. <laughs> yeah. no, that I read, there was someone I didn't recognize on that slide. It looked like Bonhoeffer or something. I don't know. It was like there was a person. Yes, who was right that? With, with round glasses. No, was, who, who, no, that was Van Lawrence. No, Van Lawrence was all the way at the all end. All the way at the end. But yeah. who was the guy below, sort of catacornered to there? I don't remember. I don't remember the there name. was one that I was like, <clears throat> I don't know who that picture is. Anyway, whatever. So, you guys are hosting a workshop. What are the dates? 14 Uh, to 19? June 14 through 19. June 14 to 19. And what's the title of it? Uh, Yeah, I have to have this by memory. (laughs) No. The Acoustic Pedagogy Workshop. Acoustic Pedagogy Workshop. Acoustic Vocal Pedagogy Workshop. At New England Conservatory. you, You used to do one. Well, this is the third iteration. Iteration and that one hosted by New England. Consumer and so, Club. you previously have had it at in Wisconsin, yeah, at York, London, which is a ama- amazing retreat. It's really that gorgeous. Lawrence University homes in Door County. And you came on last year with <clears throat> that. I did. 
And this is your first time participating no, no, officially? No. no. Oh, no. Well, well officially, yes. Sure. Uh, on a, like, kind of informally or unofficially at the first one in 2015. Okay. I led the, the book discussions that night and facilitated those. Um, kind of kind of as a chance for people who were still kind of wrestling with the ideas to come and have a little bit more informal setting to ask questions and all kind of together try to ask all of our questions together and talk about the material and then at the end of the week I gave uh, a little presentation on applying uh, acoustic pedagogy to belt techniques awesome and I want to just pay you a compliment and say thank you for something and that is that I now use your study guide in oh. class, <laughs> nice. um, because it's a wonderful way to rehash the information. Because I've, I, I've taught this that sort of acoustic pedagogy so many times now that one of the things that I've learned is from my students. I guess I should have learned this from my own understanding of this material, but that I learned from my students was. If you read Ken's book, and then you read Don's book, and then you read Ken's book again, all of a sudden Ken's book makes sense. And then if you read Don's book again, it might make sense. <laughs> that's, sort of, that's sort of where uh, where where that generally leads, at least from my students' perspective. Yeah. Um, and just for our listeners, so I'm sitting here with Ian Howell from Hello. the Bingo Conservatory, Chadley Valentine, who now is going to be at Stetson, I understand, mm-hmm. starting in the fall. And of course the legend himself, Ken Bozeman, <laughs> author of Practical Vocal Acoustics. Two of these men we've mentioned on the podcast a whole way too many times. Thirteen ferrets. <laughs> Hashtag ferrets. Um, we're all about, who, who is feeding the ferrets? Why, so if we're all here, who's feeding the ferrets? We don't actually know that the ferrets are still alive. <laughs> oh, it got dark I'm not there for a second. Dead, but I'm just saying we don't know. Oh, okay, all right. Schrodinger's cat. Because 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 John Nix has now come on board with with the ferrets. Is he on Team Ferrets? He, he is. Because uh, we were messaging about I'm, I'm taking over the poster sessions for Nats National, and so I've been sort of ghosting him this whole time, and we were yeah. corresponding about that. And he was like, he's like, okay, did you feed the ferrets? I was like, no, I didn't feed the ferrets. So I mean, <laughs> the ferrets are. In I'm on I'm on Team Clueless as usual. <laughs> Uh, but but anyway, so what? So um, we have to explain the Ferris to Ken. <laughs> okay, so so, it, so I, I feel like since Ian's here, Ian, you should brief, give a brief explanation of the Ferris. Um, okay, so a lot of the material in my dissertation is arguably crazy the first time you read it, and so <laughs> when I when I originally sort of thought of it and put it down on paper, and I was like oh my god, is anybody going to take this seriously at all? One of the things I did was I just looked through the literature to see if anybody had supported these claims in any way sort of beyond me, um, just for, you know, for evidence. And um, I had to look pretty far from voice pedagogy. And so I ended up looking, this was a Journal of the Acoustical Society of America article, and it was a woman named Jennifer Bisley, um, who, uh, actually off the top of my head, I can't remember, it was either uh, Oxford or Cambridge, and she had this research project where she was trying to train ferrets to demonstrate that they could differentiate between um, uh, an ooh and an eh vowel. And so she, I don't know how you do this with ferrets, but apparently you can give them little <laughs> food pellets or something and they'll, they'll bump their little ferret nose against a little ferret sensor that, that is like eh, and then they'll bump the right one and they get a little pellet and it goes eh, and they bump the wrong one, they bump the ooh sensor, they don't get a pellet. Um, so she was able to train ferrets to differentiate vowels, which is 
kind of cool and awesome. Mm-hmm. And, so if you and, can train a ferret, you can train a tenor. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's the. That's, I don't know. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's, that's, let's not stress this conclusion too far. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things she just on a lark, and this is what I love about science because she she had a good thing going and they demonstrated this thing, and then she thought, well, I'm just going to change one variable just for fun, just to see what happens. And um, so what she did is she, in her little MATLAB simulation of the valves, she had uh, a sound sample that was just the first spectral peak, the first formant peak um, of both valves, and just the second formant peak of both valves. Because in her mind, you know, all the information you get from the acoustics research says essentially the vowel is equally imprinted across the entire spectrum, right? This is true from a cognition point of view, but this is not actually true from like an objective timbre point of view, which is my point. Um, and so she played these sounds for the ferrets, and the prediction was, well, it doesn't matter which format from the vowel you play for the ferrets, the ferrets will still bump their little ferret noses against the correct ferret sensor and get their little ferret pellet. Um, but instead, <laughs> the ferrets behaved according to the predictions of my framework, which is that for the vowel, if you play them in the first format, they will get it right, and if you play them in the second format, they will be confused. But if, for the eval, if you play the second format, they will get it right, if you play them in the first format, they will be confused. And it was just, it was like three sentences in this, in this research paper, and she was like, I tried this, and the ferrets were crazy. And then they moved on to other I things. just love it. It I was my it's favorite thing. So it's my absolute favorite thing. It, it is every time I've had my students read your dissertation, that's the, always the takeaway, is ferrets. <laughs> it's where our conversation basically starts and ends. Yeah. Because the ferrets knew. Because the ferrets knew. The ferrets knew. And, 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 and they weren't biased. They were not, they were not blinded by language cognition. Right. They weren't burdened by English. Right. No, in, in fact, or trying to recognize a bird call. They were just, uh, yep. they were just going for their food. <laughs> they were just going for their food. So, what um, your event, we know when and where. Um, t- talk a little bit, well, first of all, how can somebody get information about your event if they're interested? So the best way to do that is um, on the NEC website. So if okay. you go to necmusic.edu, um, there's a tab up at the top called Summer Programs. Okay, I'll add that link to the, to the stuff of the podcast. Yeah. And there's a, it'll, it'll like break down who the three of us are. It'll break down what a sort of average daily schedule is. What does sort of a day look like for, for this kind of event? Mostly just ferrets. <laughs> In fact, non, non-stop ferrets. Non-stop ferrets. It's a lot of care and feeding that goes into the ferrets. <laughs> Um, I'll, I'll, I can't take that. Well, we, we actually have to meet yet to completely finalize that structure. But, but the, okay, general, the general plan of the structure is uh, Ian will start off the day with a presentation in the morning. I will then do the remainder of the morning mostly. We still have to talk with Chadley about where he plugs in. And then in the early afternoon, there's a master class every day. Mm-hmm. There are a couple of presentations we definitely want Chadley to do, and they may come into the morning once we sit down and really hammer this all out. Sure. But then Ian and Chadley are available in the afternoon each day to do tutorials on studio technology, on any topic of interest they have. And Chadley also for studio technology and also what he did at my first one, which is anyone that's overwhelmed with the basic information, mm-hmm. Chadley's going to be the go-to tutorial guy to rehash because I will probably be teaching sample lessons all afternoon. Ah, and, excellent. And those should, you know, ideally be open lessons that can be observed because that's kind of the problem. But if somebody's uncomfortable with that, you know, I can have some private lessons. 
you know, one of the things that I'm always sort of caught by with this information, I'm sort of glad to know that you have that kind of setup where they could maybe seek out some maybe just right. more, like, right. okay, let's rehash what we did today. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. Because one of the things, that I, I, I used to use a bad analogy for this, but, but I've sort of been trying to find the exact one that, that's best to describe it. But one of the things that I tell um, my students is that you will not understand all of this the first time you go through it. Yeah. And, uh, and that every single time you go through it, whether it's, whether it's just working through PVA or whether it's working through Don's book or whether it's working, just working through the material the first time, anytime the first time you're exposed to voice acoustics, I think particularly as a singer, because I think we come with our own sort of preconceived ideas about what singing resonance is or is not. Um, like I, or that a vowel is a shape. Mm-hmm. Full stop. Mm-hmm. You know, sentence. If, if that's where you are, <laughs> right. you have to break down some walls. Well, or the mm-hmm. idea of, like, I remember the first day this particular semester with, with, with the material, one of my students said, well, what does it mean for a, a, when a voice is resonant, though? You know, I mean, so that's, you know, I mean, so, so anyway, uh, I think as you go along, you sort of need that rehashing. And so if anybody's getting into this material for the first time, I just want to encourage them to make, realize that it's a journey. Yeah, it's a loop. It's a journey. And every time you go back through it, well, sort of like you and I were joking on Messenger last fall, Ian, uh, when I was starting my residence unit with my grad class, and you were like, if you ever figure it out, please let me know. And I was like, well, I, if the two of you, if us, are sitting there going, we're still trying to figure out how to teach this material. I mean, that should be encouraging, I think, to anybody because, I mean, you and I are sort of knees deep in it. I mean, uh, or, or, or deeper than that, perhaps, sometimes. But, um, no, we're fine. Um, but, uh, anyway, so, um, what kinds, um, is, there a, is there a fee involved for, for the event? There is, so it's, uh, it's right about $600 for tuition and uh, registration fee. Um, and we have housing on campus, okay. which is between $350 and $400. Okay. So, you know, our target was really to keep it under a thousand or at a thousand. Yeah, and you know, there's travel to Boston is super easy through uh, Boston Logan Airport. There's uh, public transit that surely takes you from the airport. And certainly a lot to do in Boston. I mean, more you than you have time for. Yeah. Right. And, and the area has a bunch of great restaurants too. It's it's a block away from Symphony Hall, um, three blocks away from Berkeley and Boston Conservatory. In case you want to, you know, check visiting music schools off your list. <laughs> so here's a question I have for the three of you. Since you're, the title of your event is sort of acoustic voice pedagogy, what is the difference? What differentiates acoustic voice pedagogy from any other voice pedagogy? I mean, I feel like I have a sort of intelligentsia on this issue right in front of me. So, I mean, I could offer my own, but I'm going to just sit back and listen well, to what, what you all would say. I mean, these names, these labels are just useful for, hopefully. <laughs> for drumming up I mean, interest? Whenever, whenever, whenever I have presented on this, I've said, well, if you're a voice teacher, you're already doing acoustic voice pedagogy. Yeah. If you're changing sounds, you're doing acoustic voice pedagogy. But what, what I specifically cite in these presentations with a nice right. See, what I'm talking about is actually understanding the acoustic, the acoustics of the instrument and the interactions between the source and the filter and knowing where things are likely to happen and why as a basis for then how you make suggestions to change sound. So that's, that's basically where, where I am with it when I use that. And it's, you know, I, I, whenever I say it, I always feel a little sheepish because 
it's just a label I came up with to identify yeah, the emphasis that I'm bringing to it. I do feel um, that there are people that are respiration focused. There are people that are uh, laryngeal registration focused. Michael likes to call them the breathing people. Sorry. <laughs> and there are people that are acoustically focused. Right. And all of these three elements are very important and they coordinate with each other and influence each other. Um, I, I personally feel like, but this is still a learning procedure, that I can get more done entering through the acoustic angle, influencing the whole situation than either the other two. But I definitely address the other two as important pieces of the equation. I don't feel like a name that part anatomy is really very useful pedagogically other than just to know the stuff. Um, but understanding the basics of laryngeal registration is very useful. And then understanding what the acoustic piece does to that is how it interacts with that is really useful. Um, so that's you know, kind of how I, I approach that. So let me turn. Really, I want to hear yours so I can fix mine. <laughs> well, right let me now. turn it to Ian for a second, and, and I'll, I'll I'll come back. Um, so I think one of the things that I've gotten from you has I, I think when people think of acoustics, voice acoustics, they're immediately thinking that they're immediately going to be looking at spectrograms, and they're just going to be looking at spectrograms. Yeah. How talk to me other than ferrets? <laughs> about how you came to more the listening component. Yeah. Because I think that that was a missing component in my thinking about it until I started sort of being more accustomed to your work and reading your work and, and, and really getting into this idea of, of how our ear is processing these sounds, how we're sort of dissecting these sounds. Uh, to, to, how did you come to that sort of? Yeah, I had, um, in my doctorate, I had a theory seminar teacher uh, named Robert Kogan, who was really interested in the psychoacoustics of music. And so he came of age sort of mid 20th century, and the radical ideas that he was asking the theory establishment at the time mm -hmm. were things like we really need to be able to analyze Billie Holiday singing Strange Fruit. Because sure. there are things sure. she's doing sure. musically Absolutely. that no analysis technique that we currently have can capture. And, uh, hey, all these ethnomusicologists are doing all these field recordings, and here's a recording of a Japanese like plucked harp instrument. And the things that this, this player, the things that they're doing with timbre, cannot be captured with sort of diacritical markings on a, on a music score. So he got into um, using... Uh, spectrograms as a music theory analysis technique and um, so that you know most of us come to acoustics we, we sort of drink from the well of research uh, into linguistics and research especially into uh, early 20th century technology that uh, sort of gave us higher and higher qualities of analog telephone Helmholtz yeah so starting from Helmholtz and going through Mach and um, sort of through the entire you know, 19th and end of the 20th century, the history of psychoacoustics, uh, you know, most of us drink from the well that actually comes out of Bell Laboratories. Yeah. And so we understand um, we understand sound through the lens, like especially spoken human phonemes. We understand it through the lens of a pretty limited frequency bandwidth. Um, because this is, we figured out if you can cut off everything below about three or 400 hertz and everything above about 3,500 hertz, then you have retained intelligibility. Um, and that, that, there's a, 
which sort of led us to compressed audio as well, basically, didn't it? Digital compressed audio. I mean, isn't that, isn't that part of what we're doing with compression yeah, of well, audio Yeah, the question signals? is how can you remove right. information that because, you don't need? Because there's an economic impetus to do right. so, because you can sell an MP3 that people can download in 30 seconds, but they're not going to download a WAV file for 30 minutes. Right. Um, but the really interesting question is, if you look at the, the MP3 compression codex, they do not have the telephone wire bandwidth. It's I didn't huge. Know that. It's huge. They remove a lot of information, but a lot of it is from much, much higher frequencies. Um, so you'll get, you can have full spectrum MP3s, you know, essentially, and not lose a bunch of the high end sort of stuff. Um, so I, I came into his class with, you know, I had resonance in singing and I was going to be this academic punk and I was going to teach him a thing or two. And he, he basically was like, that's wonderful. You need to pay attention to the stuff below the first formant and you need to pay attention to the stuff above the singer's formant because psychoacoustics... He was the one that said to you to pay attention to the stuff above the and, singer's formant. And form. not that's that. Fascinating. He said, if you go to the... A theory professor. A theory I'm professor. I'm fascinated if, by that. If you get in your time machine and go talk to any psychoacoustician from the late 19th and early 20th century, um, you know, they would say that a simple sound, a sign tone, has different timbre qualities as frequency changes. Like, th this, was, this was just assumed to be true. It was not a radical notion. Um, and yet we, we confront the, the harmonics of the voice in their various spectral peaks now. We think of phonemes as, you know, you must have all of these components present. You must have, if you're singing an E, you must have a low first formant and a high second formant and then some, some you know, singer's formant stuff above that. Therefore, E is the first formant and the second formant being present simultaneously. Again, the ferrets figured it out. The ferrets figured out that the first formant does not sound like E. And the second one does. Um, so that's that's basically how I got into it. And I, I started understanding how the the cochlea essentially um, it does not just passively process sound, but it actually um, sort of creates information. It creates our mental percept. It creates the image we have in our brain of what the sound is that we're hearing. It imparts timbre. Is Which is not the same as a spectrogram analyzes sound. Yeah, so a spectrogram falls short in a number of ways, and I think I think you would all probably agree with this. It does not show pitch. It shows the fundamental, but it does not show how all of the harmonics rising above the fundamental are also a part of the pitch. It does not show something called auditory roughness, um, which is to say if harmonics get too close to one another, if you think about it as a musical interval, it's something called a critical band. But um, if basically harmonics are close within a minor third and they're high in intensity, you'll get like a sort of quality, which is why the singer's formant has like a buzzing, ringing quality, because all of those harmonics are, are close enough yeah. to one another. Um, and it doesn't talk about how, you know, low tones have like a dark quality and high tones have like a bright, uh, ringing quality. Um, so, so spectrograms are great tools, but I feel in a lot of ways that the, the information that is missing from spectrograms is actually the information that singers need to understand the sound. So we can talk about how the formants and the harmonics do or do not align, and there's clearly consequences uh, to those choices, which are cool and are actionable pedagogically. But I, I kind of want to train people to say, um, okay, here's a spectrogram. Let's just look at the power spectrum, point to this part of it. What will the sonic qualities of this part of the spectrogram be? Just tell me. 
just do the math because you figured out that's the 12th through 16th harmonic and it's in the frequency range of 4,000 hertz. So therefore, obligatorily, if I'm going to try to like tune my ear to what the contribution of that part of the sound is, it's going to be it's going to be rough and it's going to have a bright, really, really, really bright E-like quality. Uh, when when I finally like about a well about a year ago got Voce Vista five, now combined with the filters and everything. Thank you, Bodo. Thank you, Bodo. I doubt you listen to our podcast, but thank you anyway. Um, that was a real game changer for I think for me in my teaching, honestly, because it immediately made me so much more aware. Of how do I say this? When I was hearing the fundamental and when I wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> I think it, I think is what I would say. Yeah. Because I I I, I you know and it was interesting just having done I just came off doing Pong and Turandot. So this was my first time sort of in the theater after having processed this sort of information and specifically with dramatic voices. So I was trying to particularly in the rehearsal space, which was very dry. Our rehearsal space was basically a warehouse, and it was full of carpet, and it was just like yeah, it was. They were they were struggling because anyway, but um, they weren't struggling as singers, but they were, we were just all struggling because you just wanted to push immediately. And anyway, but it was interesting, sort of listening to those kind of robust voices that were singing Kalaf and, and Turandot. Uh, with this kind of understanding and listening to that ooeyness under sort of underneath their voices now. Yes. And I was, it just brought this much more clarity into my mind and also now differentiating. Uh, we had two Kalafs, and one was very singers format dominant and one was very F2 dominant. Uh, um, or sometimes F1 dominant. Um, we'll leave that for another thing. Um, but, uh, but the other one was very singer's format dominant. And it just my ear now, having clarified that sound so much, I, I mean, it was evident to me what was going on. Uh, and I'm interested to hear from you, Chadley, because mm -hmm. I also teach some rock singers who are in our worship leadership degree. Mm -hmm. It's also changed the way I've listened to some of those voices a little bit. One of the things that I've had to adjust my ears to as I've taught those kids is I often don't get that compressed singer's format that I'm used to wanting to get in classical singers. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk a little bit about any, any of that or sort of yeah, what your own experience sure. that's been? Um, so, um, I, I, one of the things I want to in answer to that, uh, kind of coming off what you said about as the harmonics get closer together, there's a th certain threshold where it sounds like noise. Yeah. And also just what you mentioned earlier about that ooey quality of the fundamental. So I worked with a, a lot of contemporary singers in the Chicago area. Um, and so many of them, there was a wide range of ages, and they were all obsessed with having like a chestiness to their sound, mm -hmm. and um, in, in their belting or with the rock singers having like that kind of like spoken quality to it. And one of the <laughs> one of the things that really opened this up for me was this idea of noise. And at a certain point, harmonics, even though they're they're symmetrical, they're 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 regular. If they're high enough and close enough together, they become noise. Um, so one of the demonstrations I have for this is on for for talking about this having 
uh, examples of different styles of singing back to back in Voce Vista and just first walking him through it without any sound and saying, what do you see? Um, what style do you think this is? And of course, uh, a lot of us, like, kind of, a lot of people will associate opera singing with a resonant sound, and rock is not resonant. And on a spectrogram, um, when you look at a rock singer, it's lit up. So much more evenly, for one thing. Yes, it's very all the way to the top. If you're looking at Freddie Mercury, it's ending up around 15,000 hertz. David Lee Roth is around 14,000 hertz, where they're filling up sound. And some of them, Freddie Mercury, it's like even up to 17,000 hertz. Uh, And Adele, the same way. And um, both of whom singers are very much admired. (laughs) Yes, yeah. Um, So. Part of we for a lot of my students and for myself and I, I assume just about everybody we, we hear a rock singer and perceive like roughness in their throat, the distortion and roughness on their vocal folds and like pain in their throats and squeezing and and that that roughness is because they they don't have resonant voices and because they're pushing really hard on the fundamental. That's what all like every one of my students came to me trying to do. Right. When actually it's a tweak in the vocal tract to uh, close off the the piriform sinuses, so the pharynx is closing just a little bit in a gentle way to cancel out that attenuation factor, so the sound isn't dampened. So it's really, and what's interesting too for me is like I, I can switch in and out of that technique, uh, and most voices, te- a, a lot of speaking voices tend to attenuate pretty easily. You know, and then we know the people that we we run into who don't because it's like kind of <laughs> really rough and overwhelming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but it's just this small tweak where actually those when you look at them side by side on a spectrogram, uh, the the rock singers are filling up the whole space with harmonics, and and then you look at a crooner, uh, <laughs> and they've only got like two or three harmonics showing up, and then you look at an opera singer and like so my comparison it goes from Adele to uh, to Kalas, and with Adele she's singing kind of lightly, but there's harmonics filling up the spectrum up into the ten thousand hertz range. And with Kalas, there's like seven harmonics, and they're all <laughs> under 4,000 hertz, and they're super powerful. But there's a dead stop there. So a lot of um, a lot of the differentiation between classical and contemporary technique is learning how to take advantage of those noisy harmonics. Because as you keep adding more, it keeps sounding more rough and more spoken. And so it's up in that high frequency range that you get that spoken sound. I love the idea that the roughness is in our ears, not their throat. Yes. 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 Because the rock technique, when it's done right, is very clean. Yeah. That is is the truth. And they can do it. Man, that is. Yeah. And you're you're right up on a dynamic mic. Right. Exactly. So my well, and, and, and one of the sorry, like one yeah, of the experiments yeah. that I just love is the idea of when. when I, so I just came off of teaching a graduate CCM head course cool. for the first time. It was kind of rough. Huh. <laughs> but um, I love the idea of take, doing different things with your hands around the mic because oh, it's especially if you're actually working. Out. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, because the effects then on the microphone. You know, we as classical singers sort of have grown up in a world 
where we don't ever have to think about the signal chain. Mm-hmm. Because the signal chain is from my lungs to the opening of my mouth. That is the entirety of our signal chain. That is not what these kids, I mean, now they're not the ones most mixing themselves or whatever, but there's so many different layers of audio that that's going through, especially, I mean, depending on how what they're doing on the board, I mean, it can really make a different effect. And even, even basic mic technique. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, I, I, the analogy I, I like to share with my uh, contemporary singers is it's kind of like um, going from a trumpet or like uh, or it's kind of like just thinking about an electric guitar and if you unhook it from the system what does that signal actually sound like that you're putting into those pickups yes it's just this little plink that's all it is right (laughs) um okay so can can I say yes just to jump in because we've thrown the word roughness around oh please by all means Um, yes in in our community if you it's a dirty word well if you it means two different things um so just to clarify what we're talking about here is not um, a periodicity it's not roughness from like a speech pathologist point of view which would be an undesired quality that would for any of us yeah indicate some sort of you know issue that you would want to rehabilitate um, so it's not that kind of roughness. It's it's roughness in terms of how the, the cochlea itself, how the inner ear is stimulated by harmonics that are too close to one another. So you can have a pristine voice in terms of production that is exhibiting auditory roughness. Yeah. So that just for people playing along at home, that's, that's a distinction we have to keep making. Because we keep using the same words over and over again to mean different things. <laughs> mm-hmm. Isn't that a problem in, you know, one of the things that I, I, I talk about in my classes a lot is that if we could if we could go back and just reinvent all the words and just start again if we could just wipe the slate clean we didn't have words you know meaning we didn't even know what voce piena in testa was okay great let's just if we just started over with terminology like had no terminology and could sort of reinvent it what based on what we now know is happening psychoacoustically and acoustically and physiologically and just reinvent it it might be much cleaner but it's not where we are. <laughs> I think you would need serious magic beans for that to happen. In, in, in fact. I, I, I think, in fact. I think, too, I mean, I think language, the language we use reflects our understanding of the world. Also and true. oftentimes, the reason it's hard to apprehend the point of a new concept is because we have to become familiar with the vocabulary itself. That's right. Um, and so something like, you know, the paper that Ken signed on to asking all of us to stop using formant to mean two things simultaneously and actually <laughs> differentiate between a formant and a, and, a, and a resonance and call the formant a radiated spectral peak because that's actually what it is. Right. Um, In fact. And to somebody who doesn't understand why it's important to make that distinction, who cares, right? So I think the reason we have vocabulary issues is because we actually need to convince people of the importance to make the distinction. I that's w- a big deal. Were you at the, were, Ken, were you at the, were you at the thing, the first thing that Brian hosted at Steinhardt in 2011? When Johan was there and Philippa was there and Christian was there. No, Christian wasn't there, I don't think. But Jan Speck was there and Don was there and Ingo was there and Marty was there. I was you at the that? second one. You were at the second one. With that first one, I, and this is so this is like seven years ago now, pre that Jazz yeah. article from 2015. Yeah. But we were having a conversation They and we're sort of ending with a roundtable discussion. And I, I, there was a point, and I mean, Svanta was there and, you know, whatever. There was a uh, not not Natalie was was there. Um, there was a point in the panel 
where I literally thought that they were ready to come to a consensus that we didn't need both the words format and resonance. And, and now here we, there was a point in the discussion where it seemed like, like that was where their thinking in 2011, seven years ago, yeah. of a pretty intelligentsia bourgeoisie group was sort of heading. And they were sort of, they, they even asked Scott, because he was in the audience, he wasn't on the panel, like what the singing community would, and Scott was like, well, we just sort of want to be told whatever you guys think. I mean, so just tell us. Yeah. Um, which I thought was very prudent of him. But um, there was sort of a moment where it just seemed like the conversation was going, and then I think it was Jan Speck that was like, no, I, I think we need, I think we need both, <laughs> both, both words. I think it's, I think it's, I think it's important. We need both ideas. Yeah, yeah. that's for sure. What I I found, um, because in Chicago area, I was often asked to come and talk about, like, how to get started with this. Mm -hmm. Um, How to, like, get your, just get your toes in the water and understand. And for me, that issue with what, what is the word formant signifying was one of the big barriers for me when I was attacking oh, this because I, I sure because it was always I and then I found oh there, well, there's three different uses of it and this is how these different communities use it but what I found is when I started uh, just laying it out in and and using and talking about how a resonance create a vocal track resonance creates a formant that so many of the Chicago area teachers started being like oh and then it started like signifying specific things in their experience with the voice. So I'd lay it out as, you know, your vocal tract is a resonator with multiple resonances and those resonance creates formants. And for so many people who were like still struggling with just getting started in uh, the understanding the acoustic side, that breakdown, that of, of signifier and signified so like, oh, I can wrap my head around that. I'll tell you what I'd usually do when I give talks to more generalized audiences. Um, I mean, I, if I was presenting at Voice Foundation, I would not do this. But 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 when I'm talking like like with the talk I gave back in March, one of the ways, and I got this from one of my former doctoral students, Lee Usselton, so I'll credit her with the idea. But it sort of all made sense to her when she said, the way I conceptualize all this is that the entire formant set is the hollow shape. Whatever the hollow shape is, is the formant set. And she said, once I understood that, that the the hollow shape of my vocal tract was the entire formant set, she said, then it all made sense. And as soon as I changed that hollow shape, I've changed the formant set. And she said, once I got that, everything else you were saying made perfect sense to me. And so I usually start there with audiences, and I tell them, this is a lie, this is not how this works, but this is good for our thinking in this moment right now. Well, the other thing that's been really helpful to me, I saw a presentation that Brad Story gave at Pava in 2016. I've heard you Oh my gosh. (laughs) And where they'd use computer modeling to figure out where those forms were being controlled from where the resonances where the points uh, the important points for each resonance were in the vocal tract and that that really helped and then that goes along with a lot of the things you've laid out in both of your books Ken about the sensations we have and how the the tube dynamics work um, but just seeing like oh okay it seems that the second formant's mostly controlled by the hump of the tongue the third formant's kind of back part of the tongue. Fourth and fifth are down in the epilarynx area. Um, just being like, okay, that's that's where those are controlled from. And then how do I use like articulation to kind of mess with those? Because it always, like when we're talking about 
when I, when I started trying to apply these ideas, like my first like aha moment when I was messing with like some of the early spectrogram stuff I got my hands on was oh, I can't just sing one vowel sound and try to force the formants to move to a better space. If I want to move formants around through the spectrum, I gotta change vowels, and I gotta change the I gotta change the shape of my mouth, and I've gotta and I've just gotta move my mouth and say words, yep. and then they move. <laughs> yep. that's that's so true. So, but before we wrap up, we gotta we got we gotta, we gotta hit one other thing, uh, and that is we are we are a also a pop culture podcast. So I need to know what random interests you have outside of singing. One like random thing that you're into. It could be a book series or a book you've read. It could be a movie you love, a TV show you love. It could be uh, a kind of music that you're into that's not classical music. Um, it, it could be any a, a, anything. So I have an almost four-year-old, and so I'm listening to the soundtracks of a lot of children's television shows right now. Have you watched Wonder Pets yet? No, it's it's on our PBS Kids. If you queue. listen to Wonder Pet Pets, I'm fascinated by the theme song of Wonder Pets because it sounds exactly like a song, uh, uh, one of the one of the songs in Help Help the Globalinks by oh, Minotti. Do not. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, so it, there's your weird opera reference for today. Help Help. Well, it was technically on Broadway, but but it, the theme of Wonder oh, Pets. Was, was she really? <laughs> not in the. No. Oh, oh, just okay. in a production. Of she was in. So my I, wife has also a story done it. about that because she was one of the unmovable things, and there was a problem with the wiring, and she got left on stage when she was supposed to be off stage. There's a whole funny story about trying to having someone wiggle back out there in one of these things and get her off the stage from <laughs> their wiring suspension. She, she was a flying dog. Did they have the tape? Did they have the original tapes? Because he scored it for orchestra and tape. Yeah. Um, I, anyway, just curious. Okay. So anyway, go on with your, your children's programming. Think, man, the music on Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood is top shelf. It is. I, I, would, I would agree with that. Really, really good. Much more in tune than the singing on Little Einsteins. Yeah, well, and just the use of the use of light motif. Like oh, yeah. they, they understand how to establish a concept about how like you shouldn't push your friends or I don't know, just whatever, some little thing like that, and they'll tie it to a musical gesture. And then, when you think you're mad and you want to roar. Take a deep breath uh, uh, and, and count, count to four. four. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but we both have children. But then they'll they'll be able to to you know reference it again and again and again. And the way that they do orchestration is actually brilliant and it's, it's great. So, Absolutely. Um, it's not a reason to have a kid, but if you have a kid, <laughs> I would highly recommend Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood. Uh, either of you, other gentlemen. Sure. So, um, uh, I also have a, a four-year-old, and <laughs> so I can definitely, uh, yeah, but I agree with you, Ian. <laughs> um, and actually, we take that in any of the tasks that he doesn't want to do, we make up songs for them, little light motifs. Nice. And so, like, um, yeah, for washing his hands, which he hates, we have a whole sequence of light motifs. So scrub, 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 and getting wet, getting wet, <laughs> getting wet, getting wet. <laughs> and to fold the towel, corn. Corner to corner. Maybe you corner should make your corner. own show. <laughs> yeah, this is a calling list. Yeah. Well, I can't take credit for creating all those. Most of them are my wife's creations, uh. uh, Laura, so she should create one. But uh, um, there's, uh, there, I, I really, uh, it's been, since I've had a child, it's been tougher to read, but um, uh, to find time to That's read. That's the truth. But uh, um, 
I'm I'm hoping I, I I went on a like kind of a run of accidentally picking up novel series that weren't finished. So the obvious one is Game of Thrones, uh-huh. um, but the other one is by uh, a writer in Wisconsin, Patrick Rothfuss, um, and he has a, a definitely a, his first mention on the podcast. Yeah, so. <laughs> he has a trilogy that's two parts done. And and uh, so uh, it, and the first one it, um, it's called the name of the wind, and I don't mean to tie this back into our acoustics discussion, but it's kind of like what we do, <laughs> where we're trying to like see beyond our perception. Um, but it's this wonderful kind of fantasy novel about this uh, uh, kind of combining music and magic and in a fantasy setting and this young musician like learning how to say the name of the wind so that he can control it so it's this awesome awesome. series that is not done yet (laughs) and I'm waiting to finish it just like all the other ones so yeah that's that's, that's right Uh, anything you want to add Ken? well I'm the boring one of this trio (laughs) there there is no such Uh, thing I have had several tasks on my plate this year that have required me to focus into something. So I have a very narrow, very narrow focus. My wife, on the other hand, is an avid reader with a wide range of interests, and she's my encyclopedia. So Joanne, tell me about this. But at any rate, Tuesday, this Tuesday, I'm speaking at the University Convocation. Once a year, a faculty member is fingered. I saw that. What an honor. And and the topic is outside my discipline, but not. And the title I put to it, and I had to make a proposal, is Voice the Muscle of the Soul, Finding Yourself Through Finding Your Voice. So I've had to do a lot of just grabbing all over the place for why did I propose that and what am I going to do with it? And it, it basically, it, it's, it's consumed whatever little extra time I had for any other side interests. I love gospel, by the way. Gospel, I love gospel too. <clears throat> but um, it's been good and educational for me and good for my soul. Um, that's a quote from Alfred Wolfzorn, if you're familiar with him at all. He was a, stre- a German Jew-, Jew stretcher bearer in World War I. And, had, and he was young himself, he was like 18, dealing with 16-year-olds whose insides had just been blown up and they were crying out. And so he was haunted by the voiced sounds that he processed. We would now call it post-traumatic stress stress syndrome. And he he had a kind of a psychological, you know, aftermath that was not responding to any treatment. And he eventually sort of uh, self-healed himself or self-therapied himself by revoicing the sounds that he had heard. And he came up with this view that voice is actually a psychological procedure and and it was his recovery and he, he claimed he recovered his voice and his soul via voicing sounds and going through a period of anyway, he, he evolved a system of training voices. He took some voice lessons and they just weren't doing what he needed to access like an eight octave range mm, yeah. but he wasn't making the sounds that we use on the stage sure. like any kind of a <clears throat> phonation from there to there that were this sort of visceral honest emotive 
thing. Anyway, that was a that's a piece of the talk, and it's just a small piece, but I'm very fascinated by that. He had a disciple, Roy Hart, who started the Roy Hart Theater in, in uh, England and then in France that was doing this really extended range stuff as acting training, training acting voices. But my, my take, my went there because I, I discovered, that I didn't discover, but I observed that when I help a person uncover their voice, remove, a lot of singers around here, remove, remove uh, inhibitions and tensions, it's as if their personality integrates uh, and they, they are more truly and authentically themselves. So that's kind of where I, uh, my, my entry point into that that was. I mean, I, I come at it from a variety of perspectives that are private and personal. I suppose sure, 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 sure. But for example, my theological view of this is there's only one being in the universe that's integrated. The rest of us are disintegrated. And we're trying to recover our integrity by being reintegrated so that our thinking, our doing, our being, our saying all kind of comes back together again. And I think when you do that, whether you come at that from a religious perspective or not, a faith perspective or not, that you become more authentically yourself. So that's where this finding yourself, finding your voice, when your voice is actually completely integrated with your physiology, who you are, etc., etc., you stand there with no force, you're not forcing a thing, you just, it just flows through you, what you had to say and what you express. So that's kind of my, my thing on Tuesday I've got oh to do. Oh my God. I went with Daniel Tiger, good Lord. <laughs> I, I will. I mean, normally, normally, so at the end of, a, end of an really episode. That's not lied, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, at the, at the end of an episode, we always do um, takeaways. Michael yeah. and Sarah and I always do takeaways. And uh, that was a beautiful way to start that. Yes. Last, Last final thoughts. Well, I'm, I'm just curious. I know you'll go back and edit this later. I will. Um, and there's something that we sort of stepped up to the edge of, but never even really talked about that I'm wondering if I can just ask, because I'm really, I'm curious for Ken's opinion about this, because this is, you know, we all try and find our way through the material and through life and to convince people to hire us to do stuff. And we're all sort of searching for what can I uniquely add to some body of knowledge and like I've I've used Ken as a model for my own path because you know what we're talking about is there's this sense that there's this thing that is true about the acoustics of the voice that is like true about the physical world that we're in um, but the four of us are to a certain extent less concerned with discerning that ultimate truth and to a certain extent we're not preoccupied with the idea that we have to make everything practically applicable to somebody who has no desire to buy into the basic framework of understanding the acoustics, right? But what the four of us struggle with is basically how to explain what is vital about this information to people who are interested. And that comes down to essentially how you come up with conceptual models to explain the information. So like one of them, Ken does this hand sign thing, but if, if you're struggling with the idea of here's a, here's a resonance of the vocal track, here are harmonics that interact with it, you know, you can look at graphs all day long, or you can put one hand in the air next to the other hand in the air, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, that's a thing. Yeah. Oh, okay, I get this idea that the second harmonic can rise above the static vocal track resonance. So it was great yesterday, Ken, to hear you 
you know, talk through, and I love every time I hear you talk about this, just sort of like your journey in figuring out the initial questions themselves. And I feel like the initial questions had to do with the fact that the models people were using to try to teach you about the information were missing something. So I operate under the assumption that models are always flawed because the only way they work is to exclude information. And we got to make sure we're excluding the right information. That's right. So I I just want to ask you, like, what what do you think of the models that we're using right now? How... How are we going to, it's not even continue to simplify important information, but how do we actually convey that which is crucial? Because I've watched you speak so many times, and it's like you're objectively good at it. <laughs> like, how is it that you can talk well, to people about this concept? See, I, I, learned, I learned words from people. I learned palesthesia from Lynn Holding, <laughs> sensation of vibration. I learned heuristic from Ian. That's a good word, right? <laughs> and, I, and so now I'm, and, and this was referred to sort of I'm very, by, I'm very woke. By, by, uh, heuristic. By, by, uh, and, and I love Kari's presentation. She brought that word up. Mm-hmm. But there was even pieces of it that I still wanted plugged in, which yeah. is, it's uh, not perfect. It's arrived at by sort of intuition, trial and error, and it. But it's good enough most of the time. It's good enough most right. of the time. And I've realized you said my whole pedagogy is heuristic. It's just totally heuristic. I'm, you know, yeah, I'm trying to base it on harder information, but very selectively because yeah. you can't convey. Nobody can think all everything is going on. Right. Nobody can think that. So, so it's very much a heuristic pedagogy. Uh, the more I realize that that's exactly the word for what it is. It's, you know, yeah, this is cool stuff. Now we're learning, and I love his, we didn't get into this, because he's got some great information on, on palesthesia mm. and where it stops. Mm. Oh, it's that's wonderful. So the other piece is, is that, uh, uh, this is not answering your question exactly, but I'm now to the point where I think like, everything migrates. Everything migrates. Oh, yeah. Palesthesia migrates, vowel quality migrates, uh, shape sensation migrates. Uh, uh, laryngeal mi- registration migrates. Laryngeal <laughs> migrates. Affect migrates. Yeah. Because a different affect excites high pitches than excites low pitches. Well, every time, so, every time. Sorry, this is. I don't yeah. mean to interrupt the no. question, but I mean every t- every single time. At this point, I, I I keep hearing conversations about this stuff, and uh, uh, anytime the idea of registration keeps coming to my mind, I keep going back to Herb Speck and thinking that we all haven't read that. Yeah. And how we've not all read that? Because if, if as that's you said online that one day, configurations in singing. As you said that one day, if that's a lie, it's certainly a well-conceived one. Yeah. I mean, be, but, but, anyway, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, no, no. It, 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 but yes. But, but that's mode. a good example, because if we have mode one, mode two as the conceptual model. Right. Right. leaves out so yeah, then you have leaves to be out like, the world. Comma, and, yeah. comma, and, comma, and. Right. And if we say there's no such thing as mix, well, yeah. on one level, maybe not, but... Well, but even See, their yeah. model, if you're if you're yeah. going with their four basic configurations, right. but everything's on a scale. Yeah. Everything's like a slider on a soundboard. Well, if the voice is trained right. so that that happens. Right. Right. Can I just want to follow up with what you're asking about explaining this or simply how to how to explain this and the resistance that sometimes we run into or just being at the point where it's like, well, I'm not really interested in convincing anybody anymore. Um, when I was tackling this, um, I, I, was, I was teaching it to my students, 
and and trying to explain it to my colleagues and and talking and then family members would ask about it and what I was doing so what did you up to it so I explained what I was doing and, and you know they could ask that question at their own peril um, but what I found was is that the easiest like the the most receptive and the, and always the the, the the people who jumped and connected dots the quickest were my middle school students yeah and and that some of them sense. came into the lesson already knowing quite a bit about acoustics, um, either through if their interest in physics or their interest in sound engineering. Like because you know the technology is so available now, like mm-hmm. some of them actually already know a lot about EQ and compression, and and the ones who didn't, like just especially like. Uh, adolescent boys who had just gone through their voice change and were dealing with this new sensation of their E's and U vowels turning over you know just above their speaking range and to say like well that's what just happened they're like (laughs) I get it and then they make these they make these amazing connections between everything and jump to conclusions I hadn't even given them yet um and when I'm challenged on this this approach to pedagogy, like all you know, the question, I'll, the follow up question I'll get is like, that all sounds cool. I understood about a third of that. Well, how do you teach that? I'm like, if you, all of the what we're trying to do is like give like language to things we've just experienced. And singing and, and and language to help people experience something new. But if a student's like experienced that one of these acoustic pedagogy concepts in their own body, in their own voice, they've got a label for it, and it makes total sense. That's right. So yeah, and and I think too the other side of it, and really our, our workshop is very useful for singers, especially sort of curious seeking singers, um, but the implication for teachers of singing is what's really, really fascinating. That's right. Um, because I think it's, for the most part, for me, it's it's not just about intellectualizing harmonics passing performance, it's about what is the sound of that. Right. Um, and, and this is the part I love about the work Ken's done in recent years with his with his use of affect is like how can you cue it in a way that respects our motor learning limitations so you're not having a physics conversation with the student that's right you're getting them to generate the acoustic tuning effect okay so that that I, I just want to wrap us up because we're all going to have to to move on with our day because um, we are all here in Los Angeles at the Venard event we're very excited I'm not sure if I can even reference the other event yet because it was forbidden in the rules but I'm not sure exactly when the rules end. I'm not sure when that rule ends about social media. So, uh, and I don't want to get Ken in trouble because he's one of our supervisors. So, um, but uh, we're all here in Los Angeles, really excited about it. Um, this has been an honor for me to have these three guys on the podcast. Thank you so much for your time, your graciousness, willingness to talk uh, with us. I understood there would be bacon. There we go. <laughs> uh, I know. Yeah. Um, uh, I bought you all coffee. There you go. Um, and uh, while the podcast is powered by bacon, uh, we didn't have any bacon this morning because Michael wasn't here to bring us bacon. Uh, so, um, so we're we're sorry ab- ab- about that. But um, this has been a thrill for me. Go check out their website. 
their event's coming up really soon, so go check it out. Go to NEC. Maybe you can go in a future summer if you can't go this summer. I'm sure they'll do it again. Absolutely. At some point, I promise them I will attend. <laughs> um, it's just this summer with this and Nats, I'm tapped. So uh, anyway, be well, guys. Thank you so much. Peace out. Peace out. <laughs>